All right. Um, we call the next case up, number 20-20525, Laddie Curtis Valentine, Richard Elvin King, I guess maybe at all, versus Brian Collier and TDCJ. All right. Uh, Mr. Frederick, you're up first, sir. Thank you, Judge Stewart, and may it please the court. The district court's injunction should be reversed for two independent reasons. First, the district court defied the PLRA and created the very kind of special circumstances exception that the Supreme Court has consistently rejected. Second, even if the PLRA did not bar plaintiff's claims, the district court's finding of liability is based on multiple clear errors of fact and a fundamental error of law. Now, I want to start with exhaustion, but before I do, I want to address the court's uh, questions about current conditions at the PAC unit. Uh, since the data were last reported to the district court on August 21st, uh, this is through December 2nd, uh, I'm informed by TDCJ that since August 21st, 17 inmates assigned to the PAC unit have tested positive. There are currently four active cases among inmates at the PAC unit. Uh, there have been 27 staff members assigned to work at the PAC unit who have tested positive since August 21st. There are nine current active cases among staff. There are currently zero inmates assigned to the PAC unit uh, who are hospitalized with active cases of COVID-19. Uh, however, since August 21st, there have been 84 inmates assigned to the PAC unit who have stayed in a hospital for at least one night and 42 of those inmates had previously tested positive. There are no additional offender deaths. The last offender death occurred on July 27. Uh, there are currently no staff hospitalizations and there have been no staff deaths. If I could begin with exhaustion, PLRA bars the plaintiff's claims because there is no dispute that they failed to exhaust their administrative remedies before filing suit. The district court held that remedies were not available for two primary reasons. First, because the grievance process, quote, operated too slowly, a 7734 in the record on appeal. And second, the grievance process was not effective in preventing the spread of COVID-19. That's ROA 7735. That is a clear legal error. The district court's reasoning precisely tracks the law as it existed before the PLRA was enacted. Under the old exhaustion regime, relief had to be speedy and effective, but Congress eliminated that requirement when it passed the PLRA. That's been explained by the Supreme Court in Ross at page 1858. Under the PLRA, the only question is whether it is possible to obtain some relief full stop Relief is available if there is authority to take some action in response to a complaint, even if it's not the remedy that the inmate demands. For example, in Booth versus Turner, the inmate wanted money damages. The grievance process did not provide for money damages. The court nevertheless held that the administrative process was available. There is no futility exception under the PLRA. Now here, the record shows that TDCJ's administrative process was capable of providing some relief. Both of the plaintiffs, Mr. Valentine and Mr. King, they got some of the relief they requested in grievances. And both 
of the named plaintiffs testified that the, the administrative process was available to them. What about so, uh, inmate uh, Alvin Norris, who, who died before he got any response to his grievance? Was his, was his grievance uh, effective or available? Did, did it, was relief available to him? Your Honor, the fact that Mr. Norris died while his grievance was pending tells us a lot about COVID-19. It does not tell us anything about availability under the PLRA because the Supreme Court's been very clear in Booth and Ross, the mere fact that one inmate is not successful in obtaining some relief, that does not mean that the administrative process is not available within the meaning of the statute. Did the prison authorities change anything about the grievance process for the COVID, uh, the inmates exposed to COVID during the COVID pandemic? They did, Judge. Uh, Director Collier testified uh, that effective May 26th, the, the PAC unit, um, they basically instituted an accelerated response schedule for COVID-19 related grievances. And so, what yes, they- What was the change? What was the difference in time under the new process? Oh, yes, Your Honor. The, so under the, under the revised procedure for COVID-related grievances, uh, the first response in step one had to be returned in 15 days, and likewise, step two had to be returned in 15 days. And so uh, under the old, uh, or under the general exhaustion regime, the deadlines are 20 days for each step with a possible extension of 20 days for each step. But I, I should be clear, the fact that they made a special accommodation for COVID-19 related grievances during the pandemic as it developed, that is not evidence that the administrative process was not available at some prior point. And you only need to go back to the Supreme Court's language in Ross, Booth and related cases that as long as some relief is available, then the administrative process is available and inmates must exhaust. And that is a sufficient basis. Their failure to exhaust is a sufficient basis to reverse the district court. And so the court need not proceed to the merits. Mr. I will. Roger, if, uh, I if, I'm sorry, Judge Stewart, did go I? Ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry, if, um, if the exhaustion process was unavailable in the past and it is available today, um, what is the relevance of the former variable for purposes of prospective relief like a permanent injunction? Well, Judge Oldham, the, the relevance is that availability is generally evaluated at the time the complaint is filed. And so that's why when we look at Mr. Valentine and Mr. King, we need to consider the circumstances that existed then. And so it is a, you know, unlike the Eighth Amendment inquiry, which is very much focused on the future, it is to some extent rooted in the time that the complaint was filed. And so that's why we have focused on that. Um, but as I said, uh, under any circumstances in this case, the process was available as both of the inmates testified to. I'm looking at a deposition transcript from Mr. Valentine. Your requested relief for testing of all of the offenders was subsequently granted, right? Answer. It was amazingly so. 
And in fact, once I filed the grievance, I think it was just within days that they tested. Are, are you aware of authority that suggests that that makes this unavailable, the PLRA exhaustion unavailable, when the lead plaintiff says it's amazingly available? I am aware of no such authority, Your Honor. And in fact, I think that that testimony and the related facts in the records lead to only one legal conclusion, and that is that remedies were available. If, if I may, I'd like to transition to the Eighth Amendment question. The court aired. Let me, let me before you leave that, just let yes, me ask one question, just, just for clarity. Um, you mentioned about the revision. So exactly when and how was the revised time schedule promulgated, you know, throughout the, the PAC unit to, to, to the uh, plaintiffs? I mean, was it just like a change on the website or was there some other broadly based dissemination that there was a change? The testimony from Director Collier indicates that it was a it was an adjustment of the procedure uh, within administration. And so there was a new there was a new grievance code provided. And so the inmates were uh, I believe the testimony is that the inmates were advised that that would be the new process. And so that I think that's how it happened, Your Honor. They 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 just implemented shorter deadlines. All right, so the testimony of Mr. Valentine, that's the procedure, not the revised one. Is that right, or do I have it wrong? No, you're correct, Your Honor. Mr. Valentine and Mr. King, they were talking about the general procedure that was in place at the time they filed their complaint in late March. Okay. All right, go ahead and shift to your, to your other one. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. The district court found an Eighth Amendment violation because it deemed TDCJ's efforts inadequate. But TDCJ is not the proper focus. Collier and Herrera are. And inadequate is not the measure of liability. If we look at the record as a whole, there is no basis to hold that Collier or Herrera disregarded the risk of COVID-19, that they acted with criminal recklessness, or that they showed a wanton disregard for serious medical needs. Now, I want to start with the clear factual errors that the district court made. I'll give some examples. It found that the tests were quote unquote defective because they were only approved as emergency use and not approved for testing asymptomatic of individuals. That was true of every test that was available at the time of trial. Second, the court's credibility determinations are also clearly erroneous. The court found that TDCJ and the defendants were not credible because it questioned their method of testing only negative inmates who were retested. That protocol, however, was consistent with CDC guidance for testing in nursing homes. That's ROA 16076. So effectively, the court held that TDCJ and its witnesses were not credible because TDCJ followed the CDC guidance for serial testing in nursing homes. A third example. The while, you're on testing, while you're on testing, let me ask you, uh, when did the uh, mass testing begin? Yes, Your Honor, May 12th was the first uh, strike team testing where they tested all inmates at the PAC unit. And was the policy to test the inmates every seven days? The policy that, yes, the policy that was implemented uh, eventually was to test inmates every seven days 
And so that is the policy that continued from, I, I want to say, June 12th or 13th, mid-June. So the policy of every seven days was not, uh, was not implemented in May? That's correct, Your Honor. At first, they procured these tests and they conducted a mass test of inmates. And then eventually they began serial testing. The policy was every seven days. And so, so that's when it began and it continued throughout trial. As a matter of fact, that's not what happened, was it? Uh, uh, after the testing on May 12, when was the next test done? Your Honor, I. I believe it was, I believe it was June twelfth. Um, I can confirm that, but it was sometime in June. And thereafter, there was testing. There were a couple of times when they couldn't do it exactly every seven days, but it was serial testing. June twelfth would have been a would have been a month after the first test. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, so, 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 what was the explanation for not following the policy that they established? Well, Your Honor, I, I don't. I have to respectfully disagree with the premise of the question. I, I don't think it's a failure to follow the policy. I think it's they were creating the policy as testing became available on a mass scale, and so they eventually implemented the serial testing and continued it through trial. So they couldn't get testing uh, uh, every seven days. They couldn't test the prisoners every seven days. Your Honor, the. The record shows that they tested on May 12th. They began testing every seven days in June. And so that is the policy that they implemented. And that the fact that they did that is no evidence that Collier or Herrera were deliberately indifferent. In fact, the plaintiffs have effectively conceded that there is no proof of deliberate indifference because they argue that they don't have to prove it. But as we've explained in our brief, that is contrary to Ex parte Young. It's contrary to Iqbal. There's no vicarious liability under 1983, and an Ex parte Young suit is not a suit against the state. So Who their effort- to implement the every seven day testing? Was that not Collier? That's TDCJ, Your Honor. And well, they Collier did implement- That Collier didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have input into that decision? That's not what I'm saying, Your Honor, but T, the, there is no dispute that TDCJ implemented serial testing. Collier was aware of that. That's what they did through trial. Now, the plaintiff's effort to defend the district court's I, finding- I didn't know what they did through trial because the next testing was a month later. Your Honor, once they started in June, they did serial testing roughly every seven days. All right. Let me ask you one other thing. The uh, the the test that they used uh, had a, a fuse of about seven to fourteen days. In other words, you didn't get the results for seven to fourteen days after the test. Is that right? That was correct at one point, Your Honor. It, may I may I finish? Oh, my yeah. Go ahead. That is true, Your Honor. And there is testimony in the record that. The turnaround time nationally was one to two weeks as of July 23rd. That's ROA 9515. There was a massive turnaround delay nationwide, 9522 and 9879. There is a turnaround time of eight days. This is a national problem. So everyone had turnaround time problems. 
that can't be evidence of deliberate indifference because there's no evidence that they could have achieved a shorter turnaround time on the scale necessary. Oh, there was no turnaround right. time shorter than that that was available. That is the testimony of Mr. Collier. This is at 11-146-21. There, he said in their experience, they simply could not get it any faster, despite the fact that the curative company that performed the tests apparently said on their website that they could do it in 24 hours. That's not TDCJ's experience. Okay. All right, Chief, I, Madam I would, Clerk. I would suggest so, you give counsel a little more time. Uh, well, I was about to, because I have some questions of my own. So you're, 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 you're preempting me there. Uh, <laughs> Madam Clerk, I was about to say, give uh, Mr. Frederick an additional uh, three minutes, uh, because I have a question. I was just sort of waiting. Uh, uh, shift gears just slightly. Uh, help me understand um, the ADA uh, related claims and that set of of inmates, which sort of by definition, there are a certain number of inmates who either were wheelchair bound or walkers or whatever, whatever. So um, help me just understand the flavor of that a bit better. And having read all this stuff, it sort of merged all in my head and I don't remember all the details. So I don't know how many in the pack unit, how many were there? I mean, it kind of fit into this category of those in the wheelchairs and so forth, particular comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera, and not so much with your, I assume your argument about the PLRE would be the same, but just obviously people on on crutches and, and wheelchairs have a different set of proclivities as far as hand washing and that kind of stuff, particularly with putting their hands back on it. So I'm not real clear exactly how that was all addressed below because there was so much other in here, but uh, the wind up of that is just shift gears slightly to that set of plaintiffs who were wheelchair bound, had extra comorbidities, et cetera, of what the policy was, and even in this revision, if there was some change about that set of plaintiffs. Yes, Judge Stewart. So the the mobility impaired. Well, I took up. I, I guess I took up half your three minutes with my questions. So sorry <laughs> about that. But uh, you have time to answer. We're we're good. We're not in a hurry. Go ahead. Thank you, Judge Stewart. So the the mobility impaired subclass. Uh, there was a motion to certify that subclass during trial. The subclass was not actually certified until the the final injunction was entered. And so this theory kind of emerged during trial. The, the evidence was, or the argument is that, as you mentioned, certain inmates, you know, they have to touch the wheels of their, or the rings on their wheelchair wheels after they wash their hands. And so the argument is they must have hand sanitizer. But the, it, it, I have to confess that the ADA claim has always been a little bit amorphous, but the general theory is that they argue that TDCJ must provide a reasonable accommodation by providing individual supply of alcohol-based hand sanitizer to these mobility-impaired inmates. Now, as so was, was that was that was that the key hang-up? Because generally, you know, because it's alcohol-based, that kind of fits, you know, I guess within a general sort of ban, contraband, whatever, whatever. Uh, penologically, I mean, was that the hang up, that's my word, 
uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis complying? And I guess the answer is, you know, was there some alternative or no alternative? I mean, assuming arguendo, the penological issues vis-a-vis -vis alcohol based, but aren't there other ameliorative matters that might have addressed, you know, their special needs, you know, that didn't have alcohol in them or whatever. I'm just unclear about that piece and you're helping me tell me that subset was never really certified. Is that it? Well, not not until the uh, the actual permanent injunction, but, but I can answer your question about alternatives. You're correct that alcohol-based hand sanitizer is contraband. TDCJ considered it, they decided against it, but there is testimony in the record that's undisputed that wheelchair-bound inmates, they have access to gloves. This is ROA 10656, so they have an alternative. Um, I'll also say there's no evidence in the record that anyone has contracted COVID-19 from touching a solid surface. And so the, the other point I'll make is the accommodation they seek would be, as far as we know from the record, unprecedented because there's testimony that other prisons provided a stationary source of hand sanitizer, but there's no evidence that any prison provided individual supply. And that's a key distinction because on their theory, a stationary source would not solve their problem because they would still have to wheel themselves away from it. And so we believe it is not a reasonable accommodation for that reason. Okay, all right, thank you. Go ahead. Uh, some mobile or some uh, some other wash stations were put in uh, other than the sinks in the in the regular restrooms. Can you tell me where they were and was it any easier for the wheelchair patients to access those stations? It, I, I can tell you where they were, Your Honor. They were in uh, they were in common areas outside of the dorms. And so I I think based on my understanding of how this the unit is set up, I don't think they would be easier necessarily to access than sinks in the dorms, you know, which inmates could access at any time. I think it was more of a secondary measure uh, just to provide another option. But I'll also point out that, you know, for certainly through the time of trial, the whole unit was on precautionary lockdown. So inmates were not moving around really accept to go take showers. And so the district court found that it was difficult for wheelchair bound inmates to access the, the sinks. And you, you don't dispute that, I take it. Well, I, I would dispute that. I, I don't think there is any evidence that it was difficult for them to access sinks in their dorms. I think the only argument is that once they washed their hands, and there's no testimony that anybody couldn't wash their hands. It's just that then they would have to go back to their bunk. And so, as I've said, they are in, they are allowed to have gloves. So that would avoid the problem of getting dirt off of the floor as you turn your wheelchair. How often could they get a new pair of gloves? Your Honor, I, there is not testimony about that, but the inmate testimony says that uh, you can get gloves through uh, ADS. I'm not sure what that stands for, but there are special wheelchair gloves. And so I'm not aware of any specific testimony about how often they can get them, but there's no testimony that they were unable to. 
All right. Let me just ask you one other area. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I understand what the plaintiff's theory was is that the uh, prison refused to accommodate the wheelchair-bound inmates' uh, ability to achieve uh, hand hygiene. In other words, keep clean hands, which I think is recommended by the CDC that that happened. So, uh, uh, you know, Georgia, USB Georgia says that a prison's refusal to accommodate an inmate, inmate's disability and such fundamentals as hygiene constitute a denial of prison services. Uh, so why, why is that not a valid theory under ADA? Well, Your Honor, it's not a valid theory for two reasons. The first is that they have not established a denial of access to a prison service because even if, first of all, there is no authority that the district court provided that specifically hand washing or on the spot hand sanitation is a service under the ADA. But even if it is, the testimony does not show that they were denied access to that. They have an alternative, which is the use of gloves. They also get clean towels every day. And third, that would not be a reasonable accommodation to give them individual supplies of hand sanitizer because it's contraband. And so that would fundamentally change the nature of the supplies that the prison provides to its inmates. And there are legitimate penological interests against that. And so that's why the claim must fail. All right. Thank you, Mr. Frederick. You've still got time coming back on rebuttal, and there may be some other questions. Mr. Kevill has waited over there patiently with no books behind him. He's just got a blank wall, so I guess that means he's locked and loaded without all that. But in any event, uh, it's equal opportunity, Mr. Kevill, so I gave him an additional three, so the clerk's going to give you three over there in case you were warning about it. Uh, you don't have to use it, but you've got it. So we'll hear from you. Thank you, Judge Stewart. May it please the court. We had a chance in April to protect the pack unit inmates, almost all of whom are elderly and suffer from comorbidities, indifference to what COVID would do at the pack unit. We were told that Leonard Clerkley's death was a spark that could start a blaze. But the preliminary injunction was stayed in part because the state panel found that in view of the measures TDCJ said they were taking, there was not a substantial risk of serious harm, and in part because that panel found plaintiffs had not exhausted their administrative remedies. Up until the merits hearing, TDCJ and defendants made representations about its policies and about the number of COVID deaths and, and illnesses and infections, about 200 infections about the time of the oral argument. In vacating the injunction, this court credited TDCJ's representations that it had substantially complied with the terms of the preliminary injunction. Judge Davis, you reluctantly concurred, but noted that the facts and representations had not been under oath and not tested by cross-examination. After an 18-day trial, the trial court determined that defendants' representations and their witnesses were not credible on a host of different issues. Many Do you dispute that there are four yeah. active cases in TDC in the PAC unit today? Sorry, Judge Oldham? Do you dispute that there are four active cases in, in the PAC unit today? 
Judge Oldham, what I will say is that the numbers are not credible. The district court found that on good record evidence. Defendants what's, were- What's the record evidence that four active cases is not credible? Well, because the website is not credible. In fact, we have text where the defendants themselves said the website is not, is not accurate. If you look at the record uh, on appeal at 19814, Lori Davis says, there is confusion on the website. The numbers change with no consistency. We had other texts. I think I'm asking a slightly different. I think I'm asking a slightly different question. I just want to make sure I understand your position. I heard Mr. Frederick represent on behalf of his client earlier that there are four active cases at the time of trial, and that today there are four active cases as we're sitting here on December third. It would be an extraordinary thing, I think, to say that that's that your friend on the other side is is not giving us correct information, especially after the court asked for it in preparation of the argument. And so I want to make sure I understand, are, are you saying that Mr. Frederick's assertions are not credible? I'm not saying that Mr. Frederick is intentionally trying to be inaccurate or that he is not credible. I am saying that the website is not credible. Okay, so I guess we go back to, is it four cases? Is that, I mean, the court has to make a decision about the permanent injunction, whether you know, we have to do exhaustion, we have to do the Eighth Amendment, we have to do ADA, it's all premised on a record. And so the record in front of us was four at the time of trial and four today. And so I just want to make sure that we're all on common ground for active cases. We're not. A week ago, it was six. We don't know how many it is. And I will say that if you look at the website, last month, there were 40 instances of what they called pending cause. This month, there were 51 pending cause. And so it's unclear how many there really are and what's happening at the PAC unit. So I don't think without testing this under cross-examination, we can find that these numbers are credible. I will say that Director Collier testified that the risk at the end of trial of COVID spreading again in the PAC unit was higher than it had been back in March and that the risk was extremely high. And their expert, Dr. Zawitz, agreed that the risk was extremely high. Well, if there's four active cases today, that would suggest whatever the risk was, if the risk was really high, that would seem to suggest if those two things are true, that the ameliorative measures are extraordinary. No, I would disagree. And in fact, one point on the active cases, there was a text in the record at 19808, in which they said an offender who they had listed as recovered because he had passed 14 days since he tested positive, went to the hospital and again tested 14 days after. And the text said, we count them only once as positive and then as recovered. So we know that TDCJ, even in view of a positive COVID test, listed this inmate as recovered on their website and not as positive. Let me get at it this way. Maybe this will be helpful. Um, Mr. Frederick, and I understand you haven't disputed this, but in the briefs filed in the court, at the time of the permanent injunctions issuance, there were four active cases. And today, there are four active cases. Do you have any record evidence, yes or no, that suggests that at either of those two times, points in time, there were more or less, I suppose, active cases than four? There is no record because this court only asked for the new numbers now. I can tell you that the website between those two points has shifted dramatically from zero to six to 10 back to four. So there is no record evidence of that, just like there's no record evidence it's for today other than the representation of Mr. Can you help me understand the exhaustion argument? So Ross versus Blake squarely holds, as I read it, that there are no special, ex special circumstances exceptions to the PLRA's exhaustion obligation. 
Is your position that COVID is a new um, special circumstance? No, not at all. The no, district court in this, sure. Sorry, Judge Oldham, did not mean to. Please, no, please. The district court in this case did not apply a special circumstances exception. The district court faithfully followed Ross and found that for this group of prisoners in this COVID situation, with the grievance system that was in place when the suit was filed, it was a dead end, not capable of providing relief and grievances. And that's so how, exactly- how can we, I don't understand how, what that can be based on if your client, the lead plaintiff in this case, Laddie Valentine, says that the grievance procedure was, quote, amazing. I, I don't understand how you could say it's not available. He says what that he asked for the testing and got it within days. Yes, and the court specifically found that that testing had been planned before the grievance was filed. There is not any record evidence at all whatsoever that any inmate received any relief based on a grievance that was filed. Both There's of the not. lead plaintiffs testified that they that they had available remedies from the grievance procedure. And I, I guess I, I'm, I'm looking really hard for a PLRA case that would say where you ask for some relief and you get some relief that you somehow it was unavailable to you. It, it certainly doesn't textually make sense, but maybe there's some circumstance or case or precedent that I can't imagine. And, and it, I'm looking for help from you. Sure. What Ross tells us, right, is that the courts have to apply the unavailability to the real world workings of the prison grievance system. Mm -hmm. And in the real world of this pre prison grievance system, even Mr. Valentine, who said it was amazing that he got the test a day later, didn't realize, and it came out at trial, but that test had nothing to do with his grievance. His grievance hadn't even been looked at at the time he got the test. There is so I understand no, I'm sorry, please. No, what I was gonna say is there is no inmate who received any relief. In fact, one of the things Ross taught when they remanded the case was one of the things the court should look at is whether they were just rubber stamping the grievances. And if you look at the grievances in this case, that's exactly what happened. There, every grievance, doesn't address the merits. It simply says, we have a policy, we're following the policy, completely ignoring the merits of the grievance. So this grievance- what is, it, what is it you're saying that Mr. Valentine is testifying to? What is he, what is your, what are you saying Mr. Valentine is testifying about? I mean, we, we read his words, but I mean, what, what are you saying that he's talking about? In context, Mr. Valentine was asked, is the grievance system available? And he said, yes, it is available, meaning I can file a grievance. And he could file a grievance. We don't dispute that. It's not available in order to provide a remedy to him. The record shows that the timing was far too long to provide relief. The system did not allow COVID grievances to be treated as emergencies, even though Mr. Valentine listed it as one. The inmates couldn't use the system and still can't to address multiple issues. They're only allowed one grievance per week. The PAC unit provided these form responses that didn't address any of the grievance issues. Mr. Reynolds' form complaining of COVID issues was returned as, quote, not grievable. So I'm looking at the district court's description of this, and I, I, I apologize if you have a different page number, but I only have the Westlaw page numbers of the district court's permanent injunction ruling. So this is on star 27. And the district court says, and relies very heavily on this TDCJ acknowledgement that the 160 days for final resolution of grievances would not be adequate to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, that's a purely theoretical deadline. I don't see anything in the record, and please point it to me if you do, 
that suggests that these things were taking 160 days. And as to the contrary, you've got Mr. Valentine saying that the response time is amazing, and then he gets it in a couple of days when he asks for the testing. Well, what he was saying was it was amazing that he got tested immediately after his grievance. He wasn't saying it was amazing that they were responding quickly. We have well, maybe, this the, maybe this is the better way of thinking about it. Is is can we agree that the purely theoretical maximum amount of time that TDCJ could have taken 160 days is irrelevant in light of the proposition you gave us earlier, which is that we need to think about the real world practical effects of how the grievance procedure works. In the real world, we have evidence that Mr. Butad submitted a grievance for COVID and they passed the 80 day deadline for his step one. They actually didn't respond until 81 days. So we know that sometimes they do reply quicker than the 80 days for step one. And in some cases they take the full time or even more. Can I just, can I, I, is there, I just wanna get an answer to the question. The purely theoretical maximum amount of time that TDCJ could have taken, is that relevant or irrelevant? I'm not asking about any particular in inmate. I'm talking about the district court's reliance on the purely theoretical 160 days. Does that matter or not matter? It does matter. It's not it dispositive, but it does matter, yes. And, and I, so apparently we do think about purely theoretical things, not just real world things. No, we do think about real world things. That's why I raised this one particular instance where there was an inmate who took more than the allotted amount of time. I'm just so, trying to understand the relevance of the purely theoretical. Well, I, I think in looking at the real world circumstances, you look at the real world that says they're allowed this much time and they can take this much time. That's the real world. And in the real world, they could take 160 days and sometimes did. All right, let me, help me, help me understand where you are on appeal. Um, you, you said that the district court found essentially the process was a dead end. So we're on appeal December the, whatever the day is, the third. Uh, so what's the position on PLRA today? Are you standing behind the district court's determination, quote, it was a dead end? Are you arguing unavailability? I mean, what within the scheme of Ross are you arguing to the panel today? We're at the end of the road. Twelve judges have seen this case. So, you know, we're, you know, we're here. So, so what's, what part of PLF, what are you, are you standing on the dead end? And if so, elaborate on that so we can understand fully, you know, the measure of the argument or are you arguing on availability or something? I mean, just, you know, clarify it. We know what the district court said. We've all read the record and so forth, but within the time we got here, we're trying to, you know, elucidate on, 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 on the appeal. So just speak to it. Understood. So yes, we are still standing on that it is unavailable. And the dead end is what Ross listed as one possible way of showing that it's unavailable. What the Ross case says an inmate is required to exhaust those, but only those grievance procedures that are capable of use to obtain some relief for the action complained of. And that if the inmate, it operates as a dead end with officers unable or consistently unwilling to provide any relief, then it's a dead end. And yes, we are standing on that because that's what all the facts in the record show. There is not one piece of evidence in the record that shows any inmate obtain any relief based on a grievance. I'm not sure I understand what would be a, if, if the inmate says, I would like to have COVID testing, 
and then the prison provides him COVID testing within an amazingly short period of time in, in your client's words. The fact that the prison may or may not have scheduled that before the grievance, the grievance has been met, right? I mean, it's been the thing you asked for, you received, right? If a prisoner says, I would like to receive a kosher meal and the prison delivers the kosher meal, what, what does it matter that the kosher meal was, was, or the kitchen was set up, you know, a week ahead of time? I, I just don't, I, it, the prisoners received the thing that the prisoner asked for. Sure. I think that might moot that one particular grievance, but it wouldn't show that even that inmate received anything in response to the grievance. And it certainly wouldn't be any evidence that the inmate population as a whole is capable of receiving relief based on the grievance system that was in place. So what, what it would be a good um, case for us to look at that says the prison providing the thing requested in the grievance is actually a dead end, um, not seeing the prisoner receiving that thing? It's certainly not Ross. I, I, what, is there a post-Ross case that we should read? I don't know that there's a case that has that exact scenario where it just by happenstance happened that the prison had scheduled to do the thing that was grieved of, right? But there were so many other things that were grieved of and so many things that were in the injunction that weren't just the testing. And to some of the questions on testing, if I may, Judge Oldham, we earlier, we heard from my friend that they did testing in May and then in mid-June on June 12th, he said they started the seven-day testing. That's not accurate. On June 23rd, not the 12th, they did another mass round of testing. And it wasn't until just before trial in the middle of July that they came up with a plan, an unwritten plan, to test every seven days. And then they did not even follow it. The testimony is they refused to put it in writing. The judge found that even during trial, they weren't following the seven-day testing. So the evidence on testing, while Mr. Valentine did get tested at, and after his grievance, it had nothing to do with the grievance. The testing system was not accurate. It is not even as it has been portrayed today, and I'm sure that's just inadvertent, but they haven't done that testing, and there's no evidence even now of what that testing has shown. They were ordered to produce the test results so that the underlying facts could be tested and, and subject to cross-examination, and they never did. Can you help me understand the argument that you don't have to show subjective intention under the Eighth Amendment? That's not our argument at all. We think the okay. evidence absolutely showed subjective intent. And what was the evidence that Brian Collier, or um, forgetting who the second named officer was? Um, uh, Herrera and Brian Collier. I'm sorry, the warden of the packet, right. That the warden and the executive director didn't have, um, or had subjective intentions. Of there, is, there is a vast amount of record evidence. Warden Herrera was responsible for the implementation of the policy 1452. And yet we know the record evidence shows they had the most complaints, even though they were one of 104 units, they were number one in complaints about not following the policy. We heard Warden Herrera testify that in spite of that, no one had ever been disciplined for not following the policy. He also testified he made no changes in result of any of those complaints. We know that those, Warden those Herrera- sound like subjective intentions to me, they might be failures. I guess here's a, or perhaps a finer point on it. I'm looking at the district court's opinion right now, and I don't see anything in here about subjective intentions of the warden or the director. Is there, um, am I missing something? It doesn't look like the district court said anything at all about subjective culpability. I think the whole factual finding and what I was starting to go through 
shows the subjective intent. It's all based on the factual findings, none of which are clearly erroneous, such as two dorms with capacity for 167 inmates left open for weeks, even after TDCJ allowed Warden Herrera to do that. He knew that social distancing was important. He said that, and yet he left these dorms open. There's testimony that they never did any moving people around, even though there were empty bunks to increase social distancing. So my understanding argument is that if the statistics are grim and the conditions are bad objectively, that we can just infer the subjective intention by the failure to act? No, it's not that, it's not that we just infer from the objective results. It's the things that I'm speaking of, the factual findings that show they were no, that they were aware of things and took no action. Like Warden Sorry, I, think Herrera, I, think, I think we're saying the same thing. If you're aware of objective measured stuff and you fail to address them, we can infer that you were subjectively culpable um, in perpetuating those conditions. Is that, I thought we were saying the same thing. Not exactly, but close. If you're aware that there's a risk, a substantial risk, and you know that, and then you recklessly disregard it, that shows the subjective intent. As one example, Warden Herrera and his staff received a grievance from Mr. Rogers, that's in the record at 17940, and he received letters from Mr. Dove and his family, a blind, half-paralyzed, wheelchair-bound inmate, about his inability to work as a janitor and how that was putting them at risk. And he and his staff took no action. Assistant Warden Wilder admitted that was a safety issue, having a blind inmate work as a janitor, but they were deliberately indifferent to it. He continued as the one of two janitors for the wheelchair-bound uh, class in that dorm for the entire time. I'll give you another example, Judge Oldham. When we had uh, our 14, on April 16th, when we had our preliminary injunction, Mr. Valentine testified there was normal cleaning and that the cleaning was not sufficient. Mr. King testified there was no increase in janitors or chemicals, and Dr. Young testified the cleaning was not sufficient for COVID-19. In May, they took Mr. King's deposition and he said, we need more cleaning supplies. We never have enough cleaning supplies. In July, Mr. King testified in trial that the cleaning supplies run out by noon and that they had never been increased. Mr. Herrera said he was not aware of any increase in the cleaning chemicals before or after the suit, and there was no increase in the number of janitors. Then right after Warden Herrera testified, Ms. Director Monroe, who was one of their will call witnesses, was sent by Mr. Collier to the PAC unit. That's a 7686. He met all of the janitors and unanimously they told him there are not enough cleaning chemicals. That's at 12154 in the record. And is there evidence that like Director Collier or the warden had the cleaning chemicals and just weren't providing them? Yes, there is record evidence that there were sufficient cleaning chemicals. Their expert testified there were more than enough cleaning chemicals. And just why weren't me, they provided? If I may complete the loop, I may oh, be able I'm sorry, to tell you. Please. So on July 20th, after Monroe goes out and is told by all the inmate janitors that there's not enough cleaning chemicals, he's removed from their will call witness list and he never testifies or gets subject to cross-examine. But Director Collier is asked about what Monroe told him. And he said, Monroe told me everything looked in order, right? That's at 141150. But then we find a text that's produced and this is at 19814. And this says, BC, Brian Collier, met with Bobby and I to 
to discuss a compliance assessment team or regional team to go out and look at the COVID response. He said after talking to Gene, that's Gene Monroe, last week, he felt we were not doing everything we should have been and was wondering if that might be a factor. He said things like cleaning supplies were raised. And he said, we need to start holding wardens more accountable. So he knew he had throughout this case had been told they don't have enough cleaning supplies. He waited until trial to actually go and check it. Warden Herrera knew this all the time. Collier waited until trial to go check. And then after taking Monroe off the witness list and saying he told him everything looked fine, we see a text that he actually knew that the wardens weren't doing enough and that there wasn't enough cleaning supplies. And that- I'm sorry, was my, question, my question was, is there evidence? And you were very emphatic in cutting me off that yes, there was. And so I was waiting with bated breath to hear it, that there was evidence that the cleaning supplies were in some closet and just weren't being provided to the janitorial staff. Are you saying that there wasn't that evidence? No. No, no, I said that their expert said that there was adequate cleaning supplies, that he went there and looked, and yet there and, are this consistent- And Director testimony. Collier found them? Director Collier was told that the inmates were not, the janitors were not being given sufficient cleaning supplies and said, maybe this is the warden's issue. Before we, we, I realize your time is running short. I just want to make sure we understand your position on the ADA. What is the government service or program that was denied to the mobility impaired subclass? It's hand hygiene that they hand were. Hand hygiene is a government program. So what's the authority for the idea that hand hygiene is a government program? Um, U.S. versus Georgia, 546 U.S. 151 and 157 says that uh, hygiene is a public service provided by the prison. So the hy hygiene of your hands, and then how was that denied by, by reason of disability? Because the wheelchair inmates were not able to get to the sinks and were repeatedly, even if they went to the sink, they testified, once I leave the sink, my hands are now touching the wheels the wheels are touching the floor and other things. And I will correct one thing that my friend said. He said there was testimony, the mobility impaired inmates could obtain gloves. I don't believe that's accurate. I believe the testimony is gloves were only provided to inmate janitors, not to the mobility impaired or the wheelchair bound inmate. And who testified in from the mobility impaired subclass that they couldn't reach the sink? I have to go back. There was testimony. I can find it. And that one of the inmates said it was very difficult for him to get to the sink based on the location of the sink. And I will correct one other thing. The testimony was that the handwashing stations, which only appeared during trial, the handwashing stations were not located where the inmates could get them. And, and Judge sorry, I missed the last, I missed the the last part. Handwashing stations were not located where the inmates could get access to them. And Judge Olding, I don't have the record site, but it was Mr. Pennington who testified that he had a mobility problem in being able to get to the sink. Thank you. Can very I much. have a little extra time to ask him? A couple yeah, of go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I would just like for you to summarize for us the uh, issues that the district court found uh, Collier or Herrera were deliberately indifferent in doing or refusing to do that you rely on, just kind of give me a list. Um, the things that he found that they were not doing were not uh, tailoring a policy to the PAC unit. Despite knowing that these inmates were at higher risk, they had a system-wide policy 
and they didn't make any accommodation, particularly to the excessive risk at the PAC unit. They, okay, uh, in brief, uh, uh, the prison officials say that they list some things that they did uh, implement specifically for the PAC unit. Do you disagree with that? Yes, there were no specific things done for the PAC unit until we got to the edge of trial when things like hand washing stations suddenly showed up. But things like masks were one thing. You know, we saw record evidence that the masks were provided to many other units and not to the PAC unit. And there was a specific email that said, let's not provide to, to all the PAC unit. Let's provide only to the 65 and older. That email was on April 13th. And then it's a day later that we have a hearing and Judge Ellison, the district court judge says, why isn't everyone be giving a mask? And then on April 14th, 15th, a day later, suddenly two masks are given to everyone. So even their own policies, they weren't following them. I believe having a policy and the repeated instance of regularly not following the policy, routinely not doing things that were set is uh, evidence of subjective you know, and deliberate indifference, including what else? What else? What on your list? I would say also the fact that they knew the PAC unit had more complaints than any other unit and took no action. Collier waited until trial to set up a compliance team to go out and see what the issues were. And then even his compliance team, he said, well, I, I don't have a report. I can't say what they said. So he waited months and months knowing that they had the most issues and took no action. Same with Warden Herrera. That's certainly evidence of subjective intent. All right. Uh, when did uh, when did they uh, when did the prison officials give masks to all uh, inmates in the PAC unit? April fifteenth. All right. And since that time, they have changed them out every day, have they not? Um, where there's evidence that they don't always do that but yes for the most part the record evidence was that they had masks the big issue with the masks is that routinely the guards are not wearing masks that was the testimony it wasn't isolated incidents it wasn't a negligence thing it was a routine practice of the guards not to wear masks not how to change herrera know about that what's that how would herrera necessarily know about that because of the the grievances the grievances, he led the all of the 104 units in grievances, and a lot of that was about not wearing PPE. Warden Herrera also testified he walked the unit routinely, so he wouldn't have seen this. He said that sometimes the guard take masks off, but you know, that just something that happens. But the testimony was that it was a routine practice. There were pictures in the record of guards not wearing masks. Okay. Uh, our council said they had 27 members of the staff who had tested positive. Is that since April or is that, I would, I didn't understand. Is that since the trial? I understood him to say, and I can't say for sure that he's saying that since the trial. That's what I thought too. So uh, was there any evidence that, uh, that the guards were sanctioned or written up or given a punishment for not wearing their mask properly? No, in fact, Warden Herrera testified that no one had ever been sanctioned or disciplined in any way for anything related to COVID. And what about the, the uh, head to head uh, sleeping arrangement? Uh, 
I'm not clear in the head-to-head sleeping arrangement are the the heads of the two uh, inmates uh, directly in the face of the other one or is there a barrier between them? There is a barrier. There's the short wall that we heard about Judge Davis, the four-foot-high wall. So when they're sleeping, their heads are separated only by that short wall. Okay. And so the idea is if you slept head to foot, then you would distance the heads, you know, potentially six feet or more apart. Okay. And how far apart are they now sleeping head to head? Two feet or, or less. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to tell us? Uh, the district court found uh, that the defendants here were deliberately indifferent in? I think, you know, I would just rely on the voluminous record and the factual findings of the district court that there were so many instances of them not following. I mean, I think in addition, another example of subjective intent is if you look at the grievances that most of them are just rubber stamped with the same response and don't actually address the grievances. So I think that shows a reckless disregard of the risk if inmates are complaining about issues related to COVID, whether under the old system or new, and in response, you just stamp, we have a policy and the policy is the policy. All right, I'm gonna take the, I'm gonna take the prerogative of the, the last question. Uh, now you've, you know, we've got the record, we've read it, et cetera, et cetera, but I wanna know what your best case or cases you're relying on. You know, we start from Farmers versus Brennan, and we got legions of cases that says deliberate indifference is not the same as negligence or gross negligence. Now, the other side argues in their brief that at best, your argument is, you know, they were imperfect. There are some holes in it. COVID is evolving. Everybody's struggling. You know, there are holes in the safety net, et cetera. And, you know, it's imperfect, maybe some negligence some gross negligence. And my question to you is, don't tell me what the record says. That's not my question. Don't answer the question you think you want to answer, but answer the question I'm asking you. What is your best case or cases that even taking what you just said amounts to deliberate indifference as described in farmers versus gross negligence or something akin to that. I just want cases, not argument. I would start with the language of Farmer because the language of Farmer says- All right, that's all I want is the cases. I don't want the argument. I just want the cases. Okay. Go through. Now, they already in your brief, they're in your brief, but I mean, you know, quintessentially, so, but so what's the closest case to this? There are plenty of prison cases, you know, but I mean, what's the, given what you said, you know, the other side says, yeah, it's imperfect. It's an evolving issue. What's the best case you have that will allow holding that what's there amounts to deliberate indifference as described in farmers, as opposed to a case of negligence or gross negligence? I think your Honor, I've relied heavily on Farmer. I'd have to go back through the, the brief, but I think 
Well, that's all right. I mean, I've gone through it. I mean, you know, we, the panel, this is a hot panel. If you hadn't figured that out, you know, we've read the record. We read every shred, everything, the motions panel, the panel, 12 judges, all this record, the whole schmeal. So we're here. And so, you know, we've been on Westlaw late last night. So I just want to know, I mean, it's one thing to argue, but the cases say what they say. And so I just want to know if there's some late breaking that I missed in terms of uh, deliberate indifference. But if it's what's in your brief, you've answered my question and we're going to shift back <laughs> to Mr. Frederick. I think Domino versus Texas Department of Criminal Justice at 239 F 3rd 752 is one to show that ignoring complaints and the incorrect treatment not following the policy would be evidence of a wanton disregard of the risk from COVID. I'm told that Shepard versus Dallas County is another recent good one as well. All right, I guess somebody's sending you notes. That's all right. <laughs> it's like when you got a second chair at the trial, it's good to have that person next to you to hand you some notes when you're doing it. We've all been there, Mr. Kevill. There's nothing wrong with it. I saw you kind of uh, in neutral, waiting on some reinforcements. Nothing wrong with that. You know, this is hard stuff. All right, I appreciate, we appreciate your uh, candor and the argument you've given on behalf of your clients, the briefing. It's a tough case. That's an understatement, and so we appreciate it. All right, we're going to shift back to Mr. Frederick, who's been patiently waiting until he can do his rebuttal. All right, Mr. Frederick, you're back on. Thank you, Judge Stewart. May it please the court. I want to start by... Uh, respectfully correcting Mr. Kevill's statement that there's no evidence that any inmate received relief based on a grievance. Uh, ROA 10645 is uh, Mr. Beal. He testified that he did. The question was, so you filed a grievance and you got the relief you requested, correct? Answer, yes, sir. The fact, stepping back, the fact that inmates undoubtedly got relief in this case before the grievance paperwork was complete. That might be evidence that the administrative process was not necessary, but it is no evidence that there was not authority to provide some relief. And that is the test of availability under the PLRA. I wanna jump now to Farmer versus Brennan, which Mr. Kevill cited. The district court, the district court also cited that case. At, and this is, if you look at it, this shows the fundamental legal error that pervades the opinion. On ROA 7736, the district court cites Farmer for the proposition that an inference of deliberate indifference may follow, quote, from the very fact that the risk was obvious, end quote. Farmer, 511 U.S. at 842. The full quote from Farmer reads, quote, a fact finder may conclude that a prison official knew of a substantial risk from the very fact that the risk was obvious, end quote. The cited passage that the district court relied on in Farmer deals with knowledge of risk. That's the objective prong of the Eighth Amendment inquiry. But the district court used that language to describe the standard for deliberate indifference. But that's the subjective prong. That's well, the fundamental the judge, legal error. In the opinion, gave the full requirement that the response be at least reckless. Did he not? 
He alluded to that requirement and he did not apply that rule. I'll give you some examples. On 7745, the court found that TDCJ was not sanitized, quote, to the minimum extent required to avoid the spread of COVID-19, end quote. That is directly contrary to Farmer versus Brennan, which holds that there is no Eighth Amendment liability merely because the harm was not averted. The court held that turnaround time showed deliberate indifference because it was, quote, simply too long to effectively contain the spread of the virus, 7744. Again, that is inferring deliberate indifference from failure to succeed in abating the risk. That's directly contrary to Farmer, to this court's decision in Shepard versus Dallas County, and to this court's decision in Gobert, which says that in a medical conditions, in a medical treatment case, you must show that prison officials refused to treat, ignored complaints, intentionally treated incorrectly, or engaged in similar conduct that would clearly evince a wanton disregard for serious medical needs. I wanna point the court regarding Collier and Herrera to our reply brief at six. This is where we address what the plaintiffs described as ample proof that Collier and Herrera themselves were deliberately indifferent. We have explained what you see there is they list knowledge of objective facts, and then they say there was a clearly, quote, inadequate response. That's their theory of deliberate indifference. That's not what Farmer holds. That's the district court's theory of deliberate indifference, and it is contrary to clear Supreme Court authority. If we look at the record as a whole, based on all of the steps that TDCJ and Collier and Herrera took to address the evolving, constantly changing pandemic, it is not possible. It is wrong as a matter of law to hold that Collier or Herrera acted with criminal recklessness or engaged in cruel and unusual punishment. So in the- Did I understand you correctly that 27 staff members have tested positive since Trial. That's correct, Your Honor. Since the last report on August 21st through December 2nd, there have been a total of 27 staff members who have tested positive. Well, that's, that's, just strikes me as pretty incredible. What, what's the answer? I mean, doesn't this show they weren't taking proper precautions? Well, no, not at all, Your Honor. The, the staff members, of course, are not always confined in the PAC unit. I mean, that's, that's why May I continue my answer, Judge Stewart? Oh, absolutely, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. So, I mean, that's why everyone, including the district court, has recognized that prisons are uniquely susceptible to infectious disease and particularly COVID-19 because staff, they go home at night, then they come back in. And so it, I, I don't think it's a surprise. I mean, we, you know, they are they are out in the world and unfortunately, we are seeing that people out in the world are still getting COVID-19. So I think the more important fact is, especially for deliberate indifference, what has the PAC unit continued to do? And they have continued these protective measures. And but what kind of test do they give that staff, the guards who come in contact with the, with the uh, inmates? Uh, the record shows that they they provide the same tests to staff that they do for inmates. And when staff test positive, that, 
let me be real clear. That's I am not telling the court that there are 27 staff members on the PAC unit who are infected. That's when when staff members are infected, they are told to quarantine. So when they test positive, they're potential spreaders, aren't they? Yes, Your Honor. Yes. And what? And and so you tested the the uh, staff members the same uh, on the same schedule as the inmates. Your Honor, I believe that is correct, but I I could not swear to it, and I can't give you a record site right now. But I my understanding is that it is the same test, uh, and generally the same schedule. But I can't say that for sure. But I can tell you that I can tell you that the fact that they have continued this testing regime and have continued to screen people and restrict offender movement. That's the opposite of deliberate indifference. And, and if I could just take 15 seconds, Judge Stewart. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. I, I want to be very clear. To affirm the district court, this court would have to do several things. It would have to violate Congress's command that exhaustion is mandatory. It would have to do exactly what the Supreme Court has repeatedly told lower courts not to do, create a special circumstances, or as the district court said, extraordinary situation or extraordinary circumstances exception the PLRA it would have to contradict Farmer versus Brennan by endorsing an objective test and it would have to hold prison officials liable for a constitutional violation because they failed to completely abate the risk of harm from a once in a century pandemic the court should stop at the first step they cannot get over exhaustion that's enough we respectfully request that the court reverse all right, thank you, Mr. Frederick. ADA claim, though, would it? I'm sorry, Judge Davis. Exhaustion would not apply to the ADA claim. Yes, it does, Your Honor. Uh, yes, the PLRA applies to all prisoner claims. Okay. All right. Any other questions from the panel? All right, counsel. As you can tell, in effect. You know, I pushed this up to a class four, although <laughs> so nobody asked, but that's why we're here. It's uh, this is a fulsome case, if there ever was one. And the whole point of having oral argument is to have a conversation with counsel to get answers to the questions. And we appreciate both of you uh, with vigor and uh, candor and preparedness and answering the questions that we have. It's a tough case, so uh, we'll get it decided as soon and as best we can but thank you and your respective colleagues for the good work done so with that you're both excused with thanks to the court